In spite of the provocative title of this video, this video essay will be my attempt to address one of the most challenging crises of our time, the crisis of masculinity. Now, this has been something that has come up in both my own personal circles among my male friends, as well as in professional contexts. From a personal perspective, I have many male friends who feel disaffected, depressed, anxious, restless, and who are looking for their place in the world. They're looking to find their place in the world. And the fact that they feel lost is not cool. It's not okay. It's not something to be made fun of, dismissed, or taken lightly. And I am grateful to my friends for being vulnerable, open, and honest with me and talking to me about many of the issues that have been affecting them over these past few years. And more on the personal front, I have always had a poetic disposition towards man as such. Not just because I am looking for my husband, but also because I believe that man is fundamentally sacred, holy. And if you are a man watching this, please know that I believe in you. I believe in your capacity and potential to be great, to lead, to be strong, and to be powerful. And your capacity to be great requires you to know and be in right relationship with your weaknesses. Your capacity to lead requires knowing when to yield. This is one of the great teachings of the Tao Te Ching. Your capacity to be strong requires knowing when it is appropriate to break down and cry. And your capacity to be powerful requires you to know that your power must be subservient to a greater power or a higher power that some refer to as God, the transcendent, the Tao, and which I call love. One of my favorite songs of all time is Phil Collins' classic hit from the film Tarzan, Son of Man. And if you don't know that song, do yourself a favor and pause this video. Go listen to that song. If I am blessed one day to have sons, I will totally sing this song to them as a lullaby. Anyway, I'm getting a bit distracted. <laughs> so now that I've covered why this topic is important to me from a personal perspective, I should also talk about its relevance from a professional perspective. For those of you who may not know, my startup theory of enchantment teaches people how to practice inclusion using mindfulness techniques and wisdom traditions from all around the world, including Christianity, Taoism, etc. But one of the things I keep hearing people casually say in the professional circles that I run in is a general disparagement of men and of white men in particular. Now, if you're one of the people who does this casually without thinking and you're watching this video. First of all, thank you for watching this video. And you should stop doing that. You should stop speaking of white men in disparaging ways, generalizing, caricaturing, stereotyping, because it's actually a pretty terrible thing to do. You're caricaturing and stereotyping an entire group of people based upon their skin color and their gender. And that's not cool. And I know you're doing it because you're feeling self-righteous. And when you feel self-righteous, you can't see your own flaws or your own moral failings or your own limitations, and you've become inflated with pride. But as Uncle Iroh in the great hit series Avatar The Last Airbender told Zuko, pride is not the opposite of shame. And I know you're doing it because you're feeling self-righteous, and when you feel self-righteous, you can't see your own flaws or your own moral failings or your own limitations. It blinds you to your own limitations, and you become inflated with pride. But... As Uncle Iroh told Zuko in the great hit TV show, Avatar, The Last Airbender, pride is not the opposite of shame. It is its source. And I'm telling you all of this as someone who has definitely caricatured and stereotyped men in the past in my own head. 
I'm telling you this not as someone who is greater than you or better than you. I know that I need to work on my shit, which is why I created Theory of Enchantment in the first place. And I'm encouraging you to work on your shit as well. Which brings me to Andrew Tate, who is basically Fire Lord Ozai, Sauron, and every other major villain you can think of whose experience of pain and suffering in childhood has not been healed, but corrupted into a deep hunger for power. Okay, here we go. Now, you may be wondering why I've decided to make a video in response to Andrew Tate. Well, if the reasons I've already spoken about aren't sufficient to you, you should know that Andrew has crafted his own response to the crisis of masculinity. He has commanded the attentions of hundreds of thousands, no, excuse me, millions of men around the world. And as you know, I love pop culture, and whenever there's someone who has garnered the attention of millions of people, it's important to pay attention. This means that something is alive in the collective unconscious of human beings. And Andrew is responding in a compelling way to the needs of men around the world. Men who in many cases have never been paid a compliment in their entire lives. Men who have never felt loved, wanted, appreciated, or desired. And if you're a woman watching this feeling triggered about what I just said, and more specifically feel like, what are you talking about, Chloe? Men all over the world have had access to money, power, wealth since the dawn of time. That's how you're feeling right now. I'm here to let you know and to shout it from the rooftops again and again and again for as long as I have to, that having money and power is not the same as being loved. And this is why Andrew Tate's message, though it contains kernels of truth about the importance of men working hard and providing for their family and protecting their family, those are all true things, important things, good things that men should absolutely strive for. But much of what Tate says conflates power and status and wealth with existential self-worth. And in that regard, it is fundamentally wrong, dangerous, and trafficking in the same value system that those on the so-called left traffic in, the most sinister of which claims is that power is everything. And if you're interested, I have another clip that talks about how addiction to money and wealth is not true power, which you can check out on my channel. But this is the actual problem with Andrew's framework. It is the same framework that many so-called leftists have, and it's basically the premise that power, money, and wealth is the end-all be-all of everything. And the reason why I refer to leftists as so-called, you may be wondering, is because the truth of the matter is that all human beings are susceptible to falling into this trap, whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left or whether you have no political affiliation whatsoever. It doesn't matter. You can be filled with so much despair and so much suffering that you actually start to believe that power is the end-all be-all of everything. But if I try to capture that idea into the title of this video essay, the algorithm won't pick that up because it's not designed to pick that up. More on that, perhaps, in another future video. But for now, let's take a look at some of the things that Tate has said in the past that reaffirm this basic structure, this basic belief system, that power is everything. And here, I'm using Jordan Peterson's definition of power as the ability to compel others to do your bidding. If that sounds a little bit like the ability to enslave people or to be a tyrant over people, that's because that's precisely what it means. So yeah, it's actually very dark and very fucked up. And yes, when I go over what Andrew Tate has said, especially about women, but also about men, it may trigger you. It will even trigger me. But our job as mature adults is to adopt a mindfulness practice that teaches us to watch our triggers rise and fall like waves in the ocean and to control our chi, not let ourselves be controlled by it. And if you think that's sappy or lame, it comes from the mind of Keanu Reeves' classic first film, Man of Tai Chi, which all of you should watch if you haven't. Okay, getting distracted. Now, back to Andrew. Let's look at this first quote. Andrew has said, and I quote, I think that women belong to the man and that females are the ultimate status symbol, end quote. 
Now, it's worth pointing out here that the value system that underlies this worldview is a value system that perceives women as objects to be acquired, not as human beings to be in relationship with. This is what I'm calling Tateism number one. In the world of Andrew Tate, everything is a financial transaction. Everything is a thing with the potential of being acquired, possessed, and owned. That system requires perceiving women as objects to be owned. But it also, interestingly enough, requires perceiving men as objects too, who fulfill a specific function. That function being to acquire as much money, wealth, and power as possible. In fact, in Tate's world, men's self-worth is dependent upon how much money, wealth, and power they possess. This turns men into objects fulfilling a function. In Tate's world, man's intrinsic worth is contingent upon how many cars he owns, how much material wealth he accumulates, and even being a protector. That is, by definition, a program fulfilling a function. But although man can do these things, what Andrew Tate fails to understand is that his intrinsic worth is not dependent upon doing these things, and to reduce him to an object fulfilling a function is degrading. Let's look at another quote. He has said, females, quote, are more emotionally driven, more emotionally impulsive than a good man should be, end quote. Now, to address this point, I need to take a brief detour. So bear with me as we go into the land of the library. And we're going to explore a book. And this book is called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. It's a really incredible book. I recently read it for the first time. And uh, I highly recommend you read it if you want to check it out. So in her book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, Alice Miller explores the ways in which childhood experiences shape adult behavior. Specifically, she examines how individuals who were praised for their intelligence, creativity, or other gifts during childhood often develop emotional and psychological difficulties later in life. Andrew Tate fits this pattern. Yes, he's a former kickboxing champion and successful social media influencer. But despite his outward success, a closer look at his life reveals a deep-seated sense of insecurity and a lack of emotional resilience, both of which are consistent with Miller's theory. Miller argues that gifted children, and Andrew is certainly a gifted child, but she argues that gifted children are often denied the chance to fully express their emotions and their needs, as they are expected to be perfect and self-sufficient. This can lead to a sense of emotional numbness or disassociation as the child learns to repress their feelings in order to meet the demands of their parents and society. Tate seems to embody this pattern, as he frequently talks about his upbringing as a source of strength and resilience while downplaying any emotional vulnerability. Gifted children often develop a split between their true selves and the image they present to the world. In order to win the approval and admiration of their parents and their peers, these children learn to perform, to put on a show of competence and superiority while hiding their insecurities and fears. This split can become so entrenched that the child loses touch with their own needs and desires and becomes dependent on external validation for their sense of self-worth. Tate's public persona as a successful kickboxer, entrepreneur, and womanizer seems to fit this pattern as he presents an image of confidence and strength while rarely acknowledging any weaknesses or vulnerabilities. Are you curious to hear about an example of this? Well, for example, as a five-year-old, Andrew said that he asked his father for a nightlight as a five-year-old because he was scared of the dark. As a five-year-old, because as you know, all five-year-olds are scared of the dark, just natural. But instead of giving a normal response, his father gives him the following response. There's actually a video for this, so let's go ahead and watch it. I'll tell you a story I've never told before. I was sitting around my friend's house. We were playing Nintendo. We're about to go to bed. Friend was called Ryan, I remember. And Ryan starts screaming at his mom. Mom, mom, 
mom, mom, nightlight. So she puts on this nightlight. I didn't hear, it was a Thomas the Tank Engine nightlight. I'd never seen a nightlight in my life. So I'll get plugged in and I was like, wow, a nightlight, that's a thing. I was like, why, what's that? He goes, it's a nightlight because I'm scared of the dark. I must've only been about five. I was like, all right, cool. I remember going home to my dad and saying, hey dad, can I have a nightlight? He's like, no. It's like, but I'm scared of the dark. And I remember he was playing chess. He took, he, when I said I was scared of the dark, he looked at me, it was nighttime. He took my ass up to my bedroom, locked me in the bedroom in the dark, said, there's monsters in there, son. Good luck, see you tomorrow. I screamed and cried all night. Oh, guess what? I never asked for a nightlight again. I stopped being scared of the dark. Okay. So this is very instructive to understand Andrew's emotional development as a human being. Because the story that he just presented us with is actually a story of cruel and unusual punishment. As a five-year-old, right, a five-year-old boy asks for a nightlight. And what does his father decide to do? His father decides to put him in solitary confinement. I want you to really think about that and the impact that has on a five-year-old. Now, Andrew presents this as a badge of honor. He says his father was the best father on the planet. He says his father was a superhero. But what his father did to him was actually a form of cruelty. Now, here's the point. Do you know how hard it is for a child to admit to themselves that the person they have looked up to all their lives actually did some terrible, terrible things. Do you know how hard that is? Most of our parents, and I love my parents to death, but most of our parents did things that were good and also things that were absolutely terrible. And the mark of maturity is to be able to admit that to yourself and to consciously carry the weight of that suffering. And Andrew has not learned how to do that yet. He talks about being fearless, but I guarantee you, he's afraid of that as a possibility. He is afraid of the vulnerability and the chaos that comes with admitting that your parents, and in this case, specifically his father, was not a superhero. Now, perhaps one day he will overcome this fear. I hope that he will. I really do, because clearly he has the capacity to lead. But what I am describing is that true courage and true strength. It is, as the great John Steinbeck once said, an aching kind of growing to realize that your parents are not gods, that they do not have divine intelligence, that they are not always wise, that their thinking is not always true, that their sentences are not always just. And for Andrew to conceive of this, his world will have to go into panic. The worldview he has painted for himself would have to crash and his entire self-conception would have to die. That is scary, painful, and terrifying. That is dark night of the soul level shit. This is dying and being reborn level shit. This is the essence of what the whole world just celebrated this past Easter. The ability to die to yourself and be reborn again and again and again. That is real power, real strength, real manhood. It is the realization that this life consists of life and death, day and night, sun and moon, that the true aim that one should aim for is not mere growth all the time, winning all the time, but balance, harmony, rhythm. And if there's anything a whole and complete woman knows in her bones, it is balance, harmony, and rhythm. This is the essence, not only of the divine masculine, but also of the divine feminine. But Andrew was not taught this and has not learned to embody it. He is afraid of it, and that fear was passed down to him from generation to generation. And this is why we teach the importance of understanding the dynamics of parental baggage in the theory of enchantment and learning how 
things that have been passed down to you from generation to generation affect how you see the world, affect how you perceive yourself and perceive others, and affect how you enter into relationship with yourself and with others. If you want to understand a man, if you want to understand anyone, look at their ancestors, look at their parents, look at their grandparents. Most human beings are not living in the present moment. Most human beings are living with the traumas and lived experiences of the past and just replaying them, replaying them, replaying them, because that is what is familiar. That is what they have always known to be true. And so if you look at Andrew's dad and you look at Andrew's grandfather, you will understand Andrew. Andrew's dad once described his grandfather as the most savage man in the universe, so savage that he once contemplated killing him, savage in his parental treatment of his own son, so savage that he once contemplated killing him. Think about that. Hold that. Don't just bypass that. Don't just overlook that. That is present in what Andrew carries with him. Andrew's father was let go because from the NSA because he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Now, as a reminder, for those of you who may not know this, a narcissist is not a person who's merely selfish. It's a person who has no sense of self and whose entire self-worth depends upon external validation. Now, how might that have developed in Andrew's grandfather? Perhaps it was because Andrew's grandfather lived in an incredibly racist city, society, that was constantly telling him that he was worthless and constantly telling him that because of his skin color, he was a terrible person. You see how these things create intergenerational trauma over time. Does this sound familiar to you? Might all of these things, these complex factors, culminate in creating a grandiose sense of self in which a person's entire self-worth becomes based upon seeing themselves as a thing that needs to acquire other things in order to be worthy? Andrew Tate has been perpetuating a very toxic system, yes. But he is a victim of that system. Yes. And if your only response is to disparage him, to belittle him, to mock him, and to make fun of him, then you are part of the problem, my love. Because he is a product of deep and profound intergenerational trauma. This is a man who was forced to endure solitary confinement at the age of five. This is a man who was the victim of incredible emotional abuse at the hands of his father, who was himself a victim of incredible physical and emotional abuse at the hands of his father, who himself was a victim of racism and bigotry in the historically racist and deeply terrifying town of Goshen, Indiana, that operated according to Jim Crow. The monks teach us that if you look deep enough at rain, you can see its ancestors. You can see the cloud it came from. You can see the stream it came from, and so on. What it was is what it will be. And the magic and miracle of a man is that he can choose to be more. He can choose to transcend. But this is hard work. And so often men and women are blind to what they are and to where they come from. And when we are blind to this, then like rain, we too will become our ancestors. If our homes were filled with abuse and violence, we will gravitate towards it because it is familiar. Because that is all we have ever known. This is like a law of physics. The only way this changes is if the cycle is interrupted. And so it is no wonder that Andrew insists that this is the way man has always been. He has never been presented with any other model of manhood in his life. He is simply replaying what he was exposed to as a child. This is why he has said that war 
is the only thing he has ever known. That means his regular default state is fight or flight. His spirit has become callous and cruel and warlike. And when you become callous and cruel and warlike, it is hard, damn near impossible for a man who has only known war to make peace. And so if you know how to look beyond all the antics and all the sloganeering and all the viral tweets and videos, you will see a man at war with himself who has been at war with himself since he was a toddler, a man who is not at peace. This is no laughing matter. It is a tragedy. And the millions of men who gravitate toward him feel compelled to do so, many of them because they too have not known peace, because they too were forced by their parents and by their caretakers to shut down their emotions, to feel nothing, to become mere objects fulfilling a function, whether it's the function of winning a chess match or the function of being strong and beating everyone up as a fighter. They are mere objects fulfilling a function. And the only way to change this individually, collectively, as a a society is for men and women to start to see each other as holy, as sacred. It has taken us generations to get to this point in our society, and it will take generations for us to heal this mess. But here are some ways you can start. Anytime you disparage men as a group, you are complicit in perpetuating a system of slavery. Stop doing this. Anytime you disparage women as a group, you are complicit in perpetuating a system of slavery. Stop doing this. Anytime you look at men or women as objects fulfilling a function, no matter what the function is, good or bad, it could be breadwinner, homemaker, tyrant, whore, it doesn't matter. If you see human beings as merely fulfilling a function, if you put them into a box, you have cut off their potential to be anything and everything they need to be in order to live a fulfilling life. Number one principle of theory of enchantment, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. When you treat people like political abstractions, you are perpetuating a system of slavery. Stop doing this. Anytime you promote the idea that a man shouldn't be allowed to feel his feelings, you are perpetuating a system of slavery. Stop doing this. Anytime you promote the idea that a woman is a thing to be acquired, you are perpetuating a system of slavery. Stop doing this. The highest value of all to obtain is not power, but something that power must be in service to, which is love. Now, what do I mean by love? Well, as the great Jordan Peterson describes in this video, It is the capacity to enter into a harmonious spirit of play with your fellow human. That is actually human beings' innate biological desire and has been since the dawn of time. A system whose highest value is the spirit of play is superior to a system whose highest value is power. And a system whose highest value is power enslaves everyone in that system, including the person at the top. Because the person at the top, who is addicted to money, wealth, and power, has a sense of self that is broken without it. Now, Andrew Tate has insisted that he is Neo disrupting the system, but I'm afraid that he is one of the top dogs running the system. His spirit has been broken, and I mourn for him and the many men who have lost their way. And I hope and pray deeply that they will remember who they are, sacred, beloved, and made in the image of the divine, and that in this remembering, they will find their way back home. 